What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode 9 of the Fumito Ueda podcast for November 29th, 2018. I am your host, Albert, and if this is your first episode, this is a podcast bringing you news, rumors, analysis, theories, and discussions on the games of Fumito Ueda, covering their past, present, and future, as well as showcasing the incredible developers and community through conversations, interviews, art showcases, and much more. If you enjoy the show, go ahead and like, share, and subscribe. Also hit the notification button here on YouTube, and on podcast services, leave a star rating and review. I'd sincerely appreciate it. And if you'd like to ensure the podcast continues and help the network grow, support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash interactive artistry for a variety of exclusives, perks, privileges, and early access. Before we begin, I'd like to thank you so much for the privilege of your time in tuning in. I truly do not take it for granted, and I'd like to give a very special thanks to all of my Patreon producers on the producer tiers. Thank you so much to Philip Campana, Turpal, Eli Bergmas, and Andrew. Thank you all so much for making this podcast and the network possible. With all of that out of the way, let's get the show started. So the structure of the show will be as follows. First, we'll begin with some news. Then we'll discuss some rumors. We'll dive into some analysis after that. Then we'll have our main discussion, which this week will be on Barba, the sixth Colossus. After that, we'll have some theories from the community. Then we'll have an art showcase. I'll announce a fan of the week and also a creator of the week. Then I'll just give you some information about the network. And then we'll have the end of the show. So let's begin with the news. So the first news item comes from Eria Jucones, which is a Spanish website. Now, I don't speak Spanish, so I'm going to be putting this through a translator, but needless to say, Prime One Studio se hace con la licencia de Shadow of the Colossus. I hope I didn't butcher that one too much. Um, let's crack over to the Google Translate. Prime One Studio is now licensed with Shadow of the Colossus. The scale of this piece is unknown. So this was posted not too long ago on the 4th of November 2018. Prime One Studio is licensed with Shadow of the Colossus. So I'll just read from the translated article. The biggest fans of the work of Fumito Ueda are in luck, and it is that one of the highest quality and relevant studies in the sector in the creation of impressive pieces on video games has been made with the rights to the license of Shadow of the Colossus. Although the original work debuted in Europe in 2006, its impact was such that it would become a totally timeless work. However, thanks to the recent work done by Bluepoint Games, the work has enjoyed a new version, proudly displaying the technical benefits offered by today's hardware, with a staging that has left amazed all the owners of a PlayStation 4. Shadow of the Colossus has maintained for such a long time the honor of being one of the most memorable games of previous generations of consoles, and this new release has kept the best of the original work where we can continue enjoying an imposing and intimate work which the Ico team awarded to the one that is to this day its most recognized work. One of the exclusive works of PlayStation platforms where an emotional experience supported by one of the publications is combined with an artistic work that surprises and enamors. So many kindnesses make Shadow of the Colossus one of the most respected intellectual properties in a sector where it has become a cult game on its own merits. And now, Prime One Studios has obtained the license of such an important intellectual property and has shown a small preview of what we can expect on this first piece around the work starring Wander and Agro. 
In it, we can see one of the most typical prints of the works of Fumito Ueda, with the protagonist on one of the imposing colossi he has to face. As you can see, the piece is at an early stage, and it is already possible to enjoy the final result of the model, despite not being able to see the painting that the final product will have. Above, on these lines you have the look that will be the first and hopefully not unique piece of Shadow of the Colossus, hand in hand with the always surprising Prime 1 Studios. So my immediate thoughts with this, I'm sure many of you would echo, it is that I would love this. I would love to have this precise sculpture here, along with the entire series that is going to be produced. And as I, as, as the article says at the very top, the scale of these are, is unknown. Um, I was just looking again at uh, the Kong Skull Island. Um, there's one made by, I think it's Prime 1 as well, Kong against the Skull Crawlers. So I'll be showing a little bit of that on the screen as I say this. So that's 31 inches tall. I would really love for all of these to be of that comparable size. And the impossible thing obviously would be to have them all to scale to each other. Um, that would require a very large room if they were all roughly going off the um, assumption that Valus was, you know, the 31 inches tall. So, but there you go. Maybe one day I'll have the uh, resources to be able to get those custom built if I get to the point of having something like Guillermo del Toro's Bleak House, which is an amazing collection that he's uh, put together, which I hope is safe after the fires. He mentioned that there was some risk to um, the collection there in his home. So I really hope things are going well for him there with that. So anyhow, yeah, that's that article there. So our second news item that was published in the last few weeks is from a site called as.com forward slash meditacion. It's another Spanish site, and the headline goes as follows. Fun and serious details, the nominations for their Titanium Awards. So there is a, um, a body, basically, that awards these um, Titanium Awards, and they're called Fun and Serious. So this was posted on November 19th. Fun and Serious details the nominations for their Titanium Awards. The festival in Bilbao announces the games that will compete to win the best awards of the year in different categories. On the one hand, we have the Game Awards in the international arena, while in the local arena, the Video Game Awards Gala Par Excellence resides in Bilbao, under the name of Fun and Serious Game Festival. Recently, the lists of nominations have been published, among which we find the great titles such as Red Dead Redemption 2, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and God of War, along with other surprises to shape the candidates who may take the Titanium Award. The festival will be held in the atrium of the Guggenheim Museum next Monday, December 10th, at which time the Titanium Prizes will be handed out. In addition, we remember that the meeting will be attended by several very relevant profiles of the sector, among which we will find Brenda Romero, Jade Raymond, and Fumito Ueda. They will receive honorary awards, just as previous recipients of this award, including Jeff Kaplan, Jordan Mechner, Tim Schaefer, Yuji Naka, Alexei Pajitnov, Warren Spector, and Peter Molyneux. So there you go, Fumito Ueda is receiving receiving another award which is absolutely very well deserved and we don't just say that here because we are the Fumito Ueda podcast so needless to say this is wonderful news I'm so happy for Mr. Ueda for his achievement he and his team had to do something incredible to be able to bring The Last Guardian to life especially I think the most technically challenging of all their games that they've done so far and it'll be a nice break for him and the team um, away from working on the new game which is doubtless taking up a lot of their sort of mental emotional uh, and professional bandwidth so that'll be really nice to to see what uh, comes of that. I really love discovering new award ceremonies that I previously wouldn't have been aware of if, if I hadn't, you know, had a dedicated news section in a podcast like this. And that's amazing. And I love that. And um, I'm obviously going to be talking later in the rumor section about the possibility of his game maybe getting a reveal at uh, the Game Awards, which is what our headline is devoted to. And that's going to be a lot of fun when we get there. And we're going to have a bit of Mind's Eye Cinema um, with 
that one as well. So this last news item is actually from a while ago back in September. Meet Kowloon Knight, the group funding Fumito Ueda's next game. This is from Matt Leone. You can um, go to the article in the description. Make sure to give them the page view for that. We look at the investment fund behind nine upcoming titles. After The Last Guardian shipped in 2016, director Fumito Ueda found himself in a fortunate position. Despite the game lingering in development for more than a decade, and despite its reception not reaching the acclaim of Ueda's earlier work, players loved the vision, and the game industry was ready to sign him to a new publishing deal. Only one problem, he wasn't sure he wanted one, at least not right away. Following The Last Guardian's release, Ueda says he met with several publishers and could have taken an offer to fund a new project. His team Gen Design could have staffed up, hired external help, and moved quickly into production, similarly to how Ueda had approached projects in the past. But he and his team had something else in mind. Instead of jumping into a publishing deal right away, they wanted to give their ideas room to breathe. There was a lot of new game ideas that popped up during our extended production period on The Last Guardian, and we really wanted to take our time to explore them, on our own and at our own pace, Ueda says. So GenDesign paused its publisher discussions. It looked at alternative funding options in an effort to buy time to work through an extensive prototyping period before putting a game back on the market. And it landed on a new investment fund called Kowloon Knights. The idea for what would become Kowloon Knights originated a few years ago, when Alexis Garavarian was working on the ID at Xbox program, managing Microsoft's investments into independent games. He had been friends with Jay Chi, a consultant who had spent many years working with game developers, and the two regularly talked about how more and more small studios were self-publishing games, and how the role of a publisher needed to evolve to work with those studios. Developers no longer needed publishers to get their games into stores, as the distribution model for games had changed. And while publishers still brought value in areas like marketing, it was a different kind of value than it used to be. We had this firm belief that the function of publishing and funding needed to be decoupled, Garavarian says. Initially, Garavarian says, these were just talks between friends. The two saw it as an interesting business to tackle, but didn't yet see the value they could bring. Garavarian went on to a job with Tencent, working on its Wii game service, to push independent games in China. And while he was there, Steam began taking off in the country. He started to see the potential in selling independent games in China, Japan, Korea, and Southeast Asia. A light bulb went off, says Garavarian. I remember Jay and I having breakfast in Hong Kong, and Jay saying, this is it. The two felt that their knowledge of and access to Asian markets would bring the value they'd been looking for. Fast forward to today, and Garavarian, Chi, and a small team are formally unveiling their fund that sees these ideas through. They aren't revealing the investors behind the fund, apart from saying they're based in Asia and come from the game industry, which Garavarian says gives the group more flexibility because those involved know the risk involved with making games. That removed a lot of the financial pressure you see in a typical fund, he says. I think for us, the incentive is much more in signing great games, signing things that people will remember, and hopefully they are also profitable. But we're not first and foremost revenue driven. That's not the philosophy. The group advertises itself as developer-friendly. Kowloon Knights, which gets its name from Kowloon City in Hong Kong to reflect the Asian roots of the fund, promises to let studios keep their intellectual property and sequel rights and will remain completely hands-off in the development process, says Garavarian. It's investing in projects, not studios, and Garavarian points out that it doesn't have a typical milestone process with payments tied to approvals. For many small studios, these are things they often request, and don't always get, in publisher negotiations. 
asked about giving up this sort of control, Garavarian says he feels projects tend to turn out better when studios take on more responsibility internally. That's maybe something that we see slightly differently, he says. In my mind, and in my experience, titles where the team were sort of left to do their thing, and that didn't get significant feedback from an outside party, turned out to be better. He points to some of the games he worked on while at Microsoft, such as Cuphead, Ashen, and We Happy Few. I look at the portfolio of titles when I was at ID that came out, and the amazing games that came through that program when Microsoft generally left teams alone, he says. The quality of the content was generally much higher than any of the other things that I'd seen in my previous roles, where we had like, a full production process, where we had external producers, etc. A common criticism of the ID at Xbox lineup though, is that many of its games, including all three that Garavarian mentions, have pushed well past their original estimated release dates and have ended up costing significantly more to make than the teams planned. They have, they have, acknowledges Garavarian. I think when you look at the teams that were signed to that program, a lot of them were first-time studios, so they also maybe could not predict as well as someone who's been in the industry for 20 years the challenges that they were going to encounter through production. I think that's perfectly normal. Also, some of the games that were initially small drastically expanded in size. I think the visibility that the developers got, and sort of the initial support from the platforms, gave them a push to continue and readjust their ambition. I think ultimately it's great for the studio to be able to go through that process and sort of expand on the title. That for us would be a great ton of success. If we pick up a title that is initially quite small and, like, grows and expands and becomes something much larger, I think we would all be very excited about that. Over the past year or so, Kowloon Knights has signed 10 projects, most with budgets between 500,000 and 5 million. It's a little flexible, but that's where we like to stay because it allows us to find and work with newer teams and work on a self-publishing kind of mantra, says advisor Lindsay Rostal, who oversees Kowloon's production side. Once they get a lot bigger than that, publishers become much more helpful. The 10 games range from the already released Darwin Project to the announced A Place for the Unwilling, Scorn, Sea Salt, Mad Streets, to a handful that have only been teased, including titles from Gen Design, Duelist, Studio Counterplay Games, Tokyo-based Two Kyo Games, Montreal-based Thunder Lotus, and a new studio formed by Hyperlight Drifter designer Teddy Deef. So skipping forward a little bit, The Outlier. For many of the games mentioned in this story, Kowloon is funding them from start to finish. That's not to say there aren't exceptions. In the deal with Counterplay Games, for instance, Counterplay is putting up some of the money itself. Similarly, the teams behind Seasalt and Scorn both ran successful Kickstarter campaigns before signing on, and each studio in Kowloon's lineup is free to sign with a publisher, should they choose to. But, at the moment, the big outlier in the group is Gen Design's game. For Ueda's game, Kowloon is only funding the project to get it off the ground, at which point the team will attempt to find another partner to see it through. This is, in part, because Ueda and his team wanted time to experiment before locking in their plans. But it's also because they envisioned the project on par with the ambition and scope of their previous games, says Ryan Payton, an advisor for Kowloon Knights, and thus it will cost more than $5 million to make. Peyton says that when Kowloon began looking for teams to work with, Gen Design was at the top of the list, so it was willing to bend its approach to make a deal work. Generally, I think we do prefer to sign titles that will fully fund all the way, says Garavarian. There are just odd cases where we're just really passionate about the team or we feel like we can provide something that will ultimately help them. In titles, for example, that are larger than we can typically fund, I think for them coming in to see other partners, like a publisher or platform holder, with a prototype that's quite advanced, that's playable, can help them secure a much better deal. 
Ueda is obviously a huge exception to the way we typically work, adds Garavarian. When there are creators like him that we all admire and like, grew up playing his titles, we'll do it, but I think it's not something that we'll do for a lot of people. Since Gen Designs The Last Guardian shipped almost two years ago, Peyton says that the team has had plenty of time to experiment with different prototypes and has narrowed down its ideas into one more focused concept and is starting to move into the next phase of pre-production. Ueda, meanwhile, says that despite various job listings appearing on Gen Design's site over the past year, the studio hasn't increased much in size, with the team currently consisting of approximately 10 people, roughly the same size it was when Polygon interviewed Ueda at this time last year. Interestingly, there's no link to the interview, so I'll have to dig around a bit for that for the next episode. Asked whether he's considered a timeline for this project falling in line with the next generation of game consoles rather than the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One generation, Ueda says he doesn't see much of a technical reason to worry about that at this point, noting that he sees more limitations with overhead costs than with hardware. The size of the studio in the future will depend on the project, he says, so we're trying to be flexible. So this article ended up being way more insightful than I actually thought it was going to be. There was a lot of talk, obviously, on the front of, you know, finances and such. But just hearing Ueda talk about the next title and picturing that 10-member team right now in Japan having that artwork on, up on the walls, you know, planning things and maybe sketching up backstories and uh, little history notes and mythology notes on what the world's going to be. Um, it's tremendously exciting. Um, one thing that makes me uh, sort of, you know, it's an angle that I, I didn't think I was going to take, but maybe the idea that what we've seen from that glimpse may not strictly be indicative of what we're actually going to get. Like, if that could be maybe uh, something along the lines of what Kojima has done with Ludens. You know, before we saw anything from Death Stranding, we saw Ludens, which is the um, mascot, essentially. So I'm wondering that maybe because there is that girl being pushed on that sort of block in the logo of Gen Design um, and seeing the girl on the plinth sort of with her feet dangling there, whether or not this could be a set of mascots, for example, the big creature and the, and the girl, you know, the, the girl and the sleeping giant, as I call them. So that is pretty interesting. I wonder if this may be an indicator that they could be, you know, still in the development stages where maybe not even characters are locked down. I, for one, hope that we are going to see what we've seen already be built upon because it allows us to kind of, you know, just at least have something as a, something of a base to start, to start speculating on. Um, that's kind of what I'm really hoping. But look, I'm I have complete faith. Honestly, he is my number one favorite and most kindred and uh, the one like game developer that that and just creative uh, entity that I, in any of the mediums for me, uh, for Mr. Ueda, um, as I like to say that he, go he goes beyond the medium itself for me. So for me, number one game director, Kojima. Number one, just overall creative person, Fumito Ueda, for sure. And then I would have to say, just with that idea of the trifecta, and I'm OCD, so I have to mention him, Hidetaka Miyazaki. I would say that he's probably the number one like community galvanizer. You know, there's no other community um, like the uh, Soulsborne community for everyone coming together and being like digital archaeologists together. So for sure. So, but with that little tangent out of the way, um, I really like Garavaria and he seems like a really cool dude. And I, and I love the idea that they sort of um, modified a few things so that they could allow uh, themselves to, yeah, just tweak their formula a bit and, and help Ueda on his path. And um, I just, yeah, it's, it was very, very, like, honestly, go through it. I actually skipped a bit. So please do dive in. Um, they seem like a really worthwhile bunch of folks. And I reckon, yeah, I have, I have, 
I have good feelings about them, so I figured I'd discuss them a little bit, and yeah. So there you go, Kowloon Knights. Thank you so much for helping Ueda with this title and Gen Design the team. And if any of you are watching this, thank you so much. One last thing for me was when Ueda was talking about the and being a little bit coy on the front of the, the new generation of consoles. I personally think that the next one is going to be on the new generation of consoles. I like that he wasn't too direct about that. I think if it was just going to be on PlayStation 4 and Xbox, he would have probably just gotten that out of the way. But no, he didn't. So that's really interesting. And I really hope that it ends up being the case that this could be a... Um, a title for the next generation. Probably my ideal outcome would be if it was cross-platform, like with this generation and into the next one. So there you go, that is our last news article and now let's jump into rumors. So our main rumor for this episode comes from Reset Era. Although this is more speculation, but it may even dip into rumors depending on as we read along. Is there any chance for the next Fumito Ueda game to be announced at the Game Awards? So as you can see here on the screen from the last one, it says Godot okay is another member said that the following will be revealed in the game awards now before i proceed please keep in mind that i'm going to be talking about what potentially could be spoilers for the ceremony so if you don't want to know just skip forward for about like three or four minutes and we'll dive into the barba analysis so godot says that we will have the following reveals rocksteady's new game superman focus justice league a new alien game blue points new remake which will be metal gear the Harry Potter announcement, Square's Avengers project, Death Stranding release date, Ghosts of Tsushima release date, The Last of Us Part 2 release date, Bayonetta 3, and something about next gen. Also referencing Metroid Prime 4. So in this whole thread, Vumito really isn't brought up again, however I am going to use this as a launching off point to if you come across one person on, on Reset Era talking about something guaranteed, there's at least 200,000 people in the world who probably have had that thought or are equally as that, even if it's just one mention. I believe it's a 1 to 200,000 ratio. If someone has mentioned it on Reddit, on Reset Era, there's a huge chunk of people in the world who are also hoping that. And I would count myself, and I dare say I would count you, the listener, watcher of this episode and this podcast, um, among them. And for that reason, I can't help but dive headlong into predicting that in seven days' time, we are going to be seeing, um, yes, a Fumito Ueda, a teaser at least, something extended, along the lines of what uh, they did, you know, From Software did with uh, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. Something very small, maybe an animated version of that poster that we saw with the sort of uh, the very um, thin sort of thread of light, the girl on the plinth, and then just that uh, giant sort of moving in its sleep, and then there we go. Just the logo of Gen Design pops up, 20, 30 second teaser, that's all I need. You know, that would be phenomenal. And if I were to say where they'd place it, probably in the first 40 minutes of the ceremony is my prediction. So I'm going to go over 40% on that happening. It's just the feeling that I get. And while Fumito is going to be, you know, accepting his titanium award, which he's so going to win. Yeah, Ueda, you've got this. That's what I think is going to happen. Somewhere else in the world, his game will be debuting. This mini tiny teaser trailer. It's going to be awesome. So that brings us to the end of the rumor and speculation section. And now we're going to dive into our main analysis and discussion on Barba, the sixth colossus. Thy next foe is. A giant lurks underneath the temple. It lusts for destruction. But a fool it is not. The following is a passage from Nick Sutner's book, Shadow of the Colossus, which he wrote in collaboration with Fumito Ueda himself, and who has been on the program a number of times. We're hoping to get him back soon for the 7th Colossus and beyond. 
This book is truly remarkable. It is one of my favorite books ever written on this genre, on this art form, and especially on this particular creator, Mr. Fumito Ueda. I could not recommend it enough, and you can find it over at Boss Fight Books. Just do a quick Google search and you'll find the deal. Nick Sutner, Shadow of the Colossus. Keep in mind that I'll only be reading segments from this, not the full chapter. Please go ahead and purchase the book over at Boss Fight Games. It's only a handful of dollars for the EPUB version, which you can just have on your phone and read it. It's such a wonderful experience, maybe having some music in the background, you know, um, in your earphones, just on your way to work. It's wonderful. You can also, like, swipe down from the top if you're on iPhone and have it narrated to you while you're driving. It's really, really beautiful. But yes, I'll only be reading certain segments, just like previous chapter readings on this podcast. So yeah, make sure you go over and give our good friend Nick Sutner the purchase and the appreciation of his really wonderful and hard work. Southwest of the Shrine of Worship lies a cool, sun-dappled forest, not too dense with trees, but with a thick enough canopy of leaves to let only bright rays of sunlight in. I quietly ride Agro through this still, peaceful place on our way to the next Colossus, vaguely following the light of Wanda's sword. It doesn't work in shadow, though, and we're left to our own devices to find the best route through. But first, I make sure to purposefully head the wrong way out, something that I've done for a lifetime in most every video game I could. That's usually how you find the best treasure and the most obscure secrets. It's a systematic dismissal of the correct next step, blowing off maps and navigational arrows to read between the lines of what the game really wants you to do. Psst, don't go there, go here. Taking the wrong path first so often rewards us that it's become the only sensible thing to do the way to see the most that a game has to offer, knowing that it will inevitably loop back around to the correct path soon enough. The off-the-beaten-path discoveries vary hugely between games, of course, but I like the idea that gameplay itself is simply a means to an end, to indulge human curiosity and a lifelong quest to become closer to the unknown. Shadow's rewards aren't always as tangible as most, except for the slight health and stamina boosts that fruit and white-tailed lizards provide, but I often find myself exploring simply because it's beautiful. My wrong route takes me to a treacherously narrow path along a cliff, leading to a dead end where a fruit tree hangs over a long drop to a reservoir below. I'm struck with a mixture of nostalgia and deja vu. There's a white-tailed lizard here to grab, a rare sight away from the safe shrines, but the branch holding the fruit is growing out over the drop, so my usual routine of shooting the fruit down and collecting it off the ground won't work. It's a stymieing scene that's stuck with me for years, this isolated tree growing at a dead end with forbidden fruit that I can't gather. It feels both natural and specifically authored, hand-placed by a level designer with a playful smirk on their face. When you're constructing a world, it's boring if everything is just there for logical or functional reasons, Ueda tells me. We left in some noise on purpose. I weave my way back through the woods, connecting with a new trail that leads me through a variety of biomes before spitting me out into a wide, arid desert. The light off the sword points me all the way across the sand, to the symmetric face of a temple embedded in a broad, imposing cliff. I find a sly entrance at its base, and leaving Agra behind, I venture into a series of underground tunnels, taking me deeper into the bowels of the mountain. Eventually I emerge near the top of a massive subterranean hall. Scaling down nearby ledges to the floor below, no sooner do Wanda's feet touch the ground than a huge adjacent wall lowers, revealing the sixth colossus, Barba. According to Ueda, Barba, called Minotaur B in development, is a sibling of Valus, the first colossus, another one of three Minotaur-esque siblings, another one of three Minotaur-esque creatures. 
He looks familiar, though perhaps more well-preserved in his lair, his many outcroppings of armor fully intact, his limbs even thicker and more muscled. He wears a different mask too, and diminutive horns jut out of his head on both sides. He's also aggressive, needing no provocation, and immediately heads towards Wanda, smashing and stomping the ground nearby. I make a break for it across the huge hall. I hide behind a pillar as Barba stomps around, eventually leaning down to look for me more closely. This reveals Barba's defining physical characteristic and biggest distinction from Valus, a long, layered beard that hangs in front of the ample mane that covers his chest and shoulders and now hangs freely in front of me, beckoning. I have a complicated relationship with beards, which might sound weird coming from a guy who's very much known for and defined by his beard, both personally and professionally. I couldn't grow any whisper of a beard until my early twenties, at which point I made up for lost time, and within a few years I was more often fully bearded than not. I've only been clean-shaven twice since I moved to California almost nine years ago, and my beard is now inseparable from my identity. I get very kind, very regular compliments from strangers of, nice beard, and while I thank them I also think, I basically did nothing for a while and now it's here. <laughs> And while I've come to terms with the fact that I have a pretty good beard, I don't like being defined by my beard, the way certain colleagues feel their need the way certain colleagues feel the need to comment on it every time they see me, as if we have no other way of connecting. Still, having a beard feels sort of primal and even masculine, a characteristic that doesn't come easily to someone who can't throw a football properly and thinks his car runs via magic. As a result, I as a result, I often do define myself by my beard, as I did in the introduction of this book. As I did in the introduction of, as I did in the introduction to this book, like I said, it's complicated. So with apologies to Barba, I mean, come on, his name is basically Barber. I remember him primarily as the bearded Colossus, and when he presents the opportunity, I take a running leap. I run around on the ground for a while, trying to spot the second sigil with the light. I run around on the ground for a while, trying to spot the sigil with the light of my sword, while avoiding Barba's stomps. In the grand scheme of shadow, Barba is one of the least reading, speaking. So Nick here offers his thoughts on Barba. So Nick here offers his personal thoughts on Barba. In the grand scheme of shadow, Barba is one of the least interesting colossi, especially coming on the heels of the thrilling airborne battle with Avion. But he's also a smart step in pacing and contrast, and serves as a pop quiz to test out some of the techniques learned from free. And serves as a pop quiz to test out and serves as a pop quiz to test out some of the techniques learned from previous battles. According to Ueda, humanoid colossi have some pliability and can move in a variety of ways, so it was easy to come up with ideas for this one. This may have been a case where one of the first ideas was solid, climb the beard, and the implementation gave them a colossus flexible enough to slot into the lineup where needed, even if it wasn't one of the stronger ideas on its own. My girlfriend had been watching this fight from the sidelines, but she missed the ending, so when she turns so when she returns I excitedly tell her so when she returns I excitedly tell her where the final sigil was located. So I excitedly tell her where the final sigil was located, on Barbara's left shoulder blade, in the exact same spot that I've been having sharp reoccurring pain for the last couple of years. Amused, I summarized the similarities between us, lengthy beard, weak spot in the shoulder blade, and I realized there's one more. It's a bright, beautiful Saturday outside, our blinds are drawn, and we're holed up in the darkness. Like it, like it or not, Barba is my colossus today. Thanks for that, Nick. You're awesome. I hope to get you on the show again soon. Out of all the 16 colossi, for me personally, I would say that Barba has the most drama to his look. 
I do enjoy, obviously, the um, Seventh Colossus a lot, but um, I think there's a wizened feeling to him, not just from his beard, but from his posture. And my immediate speculation when I look at, uh, you know, the figure of Barba is this um, almost like the darker twin of, uh, of Valus. Valus looks a little bit more naive, you know, and um, and with sort of wide-eyed, but Barba looks just wizened and old and um but also angry there's an anger to him and uh i w and there's also just a generally darker color scheme to him which i wonder if that was done to convey uh yeah this just beautiful as nick was saying the way that these colossi are placed along the journey to kind of create a narrative in a way of the the order of discovery of this colossi because otherwise uh, ueda wouldn't have allowed them to be discovered um they would yeah he would have done it more open world so that you'd find one uh you know that's why they have their names you know first second third fourth the nicknames are just as uh, you know self-explanatory nicknames so yeah there was a reason why they chose the sixth colossus right now to get technical and to get super symbolic as is my want here on interactive artistry the number six when inverted resembles a face uh, with something dangling off it and that would be a beard so there you go i wonder if there's a relation there And it's also interesting that the average long beard of. And it's also interesting that when it comes to beard length, um, six inches is usually six inches from the face usually constitutes basically a long beard. Before that, you're looking at something that kind of sticks to the face. And then after six inches, it starts to dangle and sway the same way that Barba's beard does. In terms of an in-universe reason for his sort of darker skin, as I mentioned, my speculation is that Valus is a younger Minotaur, smaller, and Barba, like if these creatures maybe have this mixture of masonry and organic uh, sort of physiology. You know, when you're looking at uh, ruins and crumbling ruins, the, the longer they've been out, the darker they get because they're exposed to the elements more. Um, so as well as the darker scheme uh, chosen to convey age then you add the beard there you're getting the sense narratively that you're saying well six we're we're in our 60s you know like it's it's a it's a great sort of unconscious use of the name uh the name obviously barba which in italian means beard straight up and it's probably linked to the latin of that as well and yeah that it just means that we're we're getting we're getting old in our story and in fact uh we're not even halfway and we've already started to age, <laughs> you know? That's kind of my sense of why he was placed this way. In terms of visuals, I would almost, I'll have to do a ranking at some point after all of these um, Colossi specific analyses are all done, a ranking of them. And for me, I know I haven't been saying it on the previous ones, but Barba is 100% in my top sort of uh, five, my, my top five of all the Colossi that, um, that we're going to be covering on this show before we're heading in, before we before we head into The Last Guardian and then eventually Eco, and then, yes, um, the next game after that that Aweda's making right now with Gen Design. The drama, the drama especially of, the drama especially of Barba when depicted in so much art, which I'm going to be showing here as I'm speaking, is, is staggering. It's, it's um, especially if you think of mythology, which we're going to dive into now, um, giants, in mythology often are given these beards and you know not all of them in um uh 
you know in this in this game have beards but the completion like the most the truest version of the idea of a giant is it implies something that is has grown to great size and then the word grow obviously you're thinking of something that grows and what else grows is beard so there's there's a so there's a link there um it, like so there's a link there based in our real world mythology of these words meaning of this word growth being synonymous with something growing long and huge and big which is yes a beard and then obviously giants as well this also ties into their uh, as nick was alluding to this um sense of masculinity you know and the sense of towering over and, and power and something that is imposing but i love how that's juxtaposed with the feeling of him getting older and and darker and and uh, more hunched over and it reminds me of almost like a madman you know how, how he searches for you through the ruins so again this wonderful thing that ueda does which he he takes an element but then he he subverts it with something as i like to say that sort of wabi-sabi kind of aspect which is you know with um the uh, with quadratus for example the broken horn you know there's there's always something intended and then there's a, a flourish that's added you know like uh, Gaius, this big, towering, lanky, like warrior with his with his long sort of sword, and then you you, you think imposing there, you think in, uh, un, like unconquerable, you know, Gaius, you know, based on that Roman figure, and then when you go up to him, his face is like he, he looks so fearful when you when you're sort of um, about to sort of basically fell him as a giant, that face, that small head, which you would initially think based on this perspective which is what you learn we learned this in cinematography class is when you're looking at something from below the face looks so far away it's so small it implies like the legs and the midriff are larger and more planted and more solid and, and more imposing so that the, that the head is further away and, and more distant and unknowable but when you're up there you've crawled into their sort of personal space these uh these creatures often show their vulnerability and they show their fallibility um and again, that serves further towards uh, Ueda's allegory of something being fundamentally wrong with um, taking command and, and, and assuming ownership and assuming dominion over nature, that it is wrong to, to, subject, to, to subject it to our whims, um, to our desires and to our... Um, our sense of consumerism and our sense of consuming. That's what um, Wonder is doing. He's consuming these natural resources, really, which is the magic of Dorman, taking these and 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 channeling it away from where it's supposed to be in these forbidden creatures in this again allegorical forbidden land and these um entities that hold this power you know and using it for his own ends so that there's a parable to be there's a parable to be um there's a parable to be understood and shared and interpreted here for sure a very powerful one at that so yes so the following here is from so the following here is from the wonderful teamico.wikia.com and it is the trivia surrounding. And it is, and it is the trivia surrounding our good friend Barba. So Barba is the first of only two colossi that are fought underground. The other the other is Dirge. Barba is the only colossus to use their fists as their primary weapon. Argus doesn't Argus does use its hands to attack, but only after it has been disarmed. Dorman uses the line, it lusts for destruction, to... Dorman uses the line, it lusts for destruction, to describe both... Dorman uses the line, it lusts for destruction, to describe both Zenobia and Barba. 
I find that to be quite interesting. I wonder if there's some connection between the two, um, whether or not maybe Cenobia was like Barbara's like hound. Just in this hypothetical background that I like to dive into when I'm doing Mind's Eye Cinema with this podcast and speculating about, you know, again, diving into what may be without, within our own thoughts and within our own analysis and breakdowns. You know, it's interesting to dive into what we see in terms of imagery and imagining what led that imagery to come to pass and these connections to come to pass as well. So, yeah. Barba. So Barba is the only colossus to emerge from behind a wall that opens upon Wanda's arrival by itself. Quadratus is behind a wall initially, but rather than it opening as it does for Barba, Quadratus breaks it down. This door will remain open during the duration of the fight, although it remains too high for Wanda to climb over, so Wanda cannot enter the chamber that Barba emerges from, which means that Wanda cannot escape the chamber once it fit. which means that Wanda cannot escape the chamber once the fight begins. However, it will close after Barba has been defeated, allowing, allowing Wanda access to Barba's body on the lowest floor in order to enter reminiscence mode and exit the chamber after, and exit the chamber afterwards. Just as I was reading that, I had a flash of you know we're getting so many announcements re- recently of um, like Cowboy Bebop was just announced and Netflix are going to make a uh, or well rather Adi Shankar is going to do a Castlevania. Uh, sorry, a um, a Devil May Cry series. I just had a flash. It was so strong just now as I, as I was reading that. Imagine a 16-part Netflix series based on Shadow of the Colossus, one for each Colossi, just beautifully and beautifully animated. Something along the lines of something that maybe Yoshitaka Amano would have been involved with. Uh, I can't remember the name, but it's the one with uh, the girl uh, and the egg. It's a wonderful anime. If I remember it, I'll put some footage of it um, as I'm speaking about this. But just imagine that something wonderful orchestrated, um, you know, uh, and, and then, yeah, with maybe voiceovers. And I think it would be wonderful. Imagine the sequences that could be done. And uh, um, Evangelion, yes, also is, is announced recently for, for Netflix to arrive. Um, the entire series are watchable on Netflix. I can't I can't shake that. Um, I, I really want that to happen, you know, to see something extended that's respectful, obviously, of um, the show. That's respectful, obviously, of the game, but that um, allows us to see just a different angle and maybe new glimpses and oh, maybe even flashbacks into Lord Eamon's past and into the the ancient civilization. I wonder that. I think that would be. I think that would be quite doable and very interesting. So I wonder if Mr. Ueda would consider something like that down the line. So on to the next item here. Barba shares physical similarities with both Valus and Argus, and Barba is the largest of the three. Again, adding to that idea that the older and more ancient, the colossi, the larger and sort of hairier and um, more imposing it becomes. Just a theory of mine. Barba makes sounds very much like that of a bellowing, roaring bear. The major sigil on Barba's head is off-center and directioned incorrectly. It's more on the left side of its head and vertically points slightly to the left as well. From the location in which it is fought, Barba is one of three colossi that cannot see the pillars of light that the fallen bodies of other colossi emit, with the other two being Kuromori and Dirge. The fight against Barba is similar to the fight against Phaedra. The fight against Barba is similar to the fight against Phaedra. In both instances, Wanda must lead the colossus to the entrance of some ruins, which he must then hide within. He then has to wait for the Colossus to bend slash kneel down and peer into the entrance of the ruins in an attempt to find him. 
By leaning down to search for Wanda, Barba lowers its head, making its long beard accessible in the fight making its long beard accessible. In the fight against Phaedra, the two rock columns dangling from either side of its head act as Barba's beard does, allowing Wanda to climb up as it does allowing allowing Wanda to climb up it and onto the Colossus. Barba is unique in that it is Barba is unique in that it is the only Colossus which Wanda doesn't have to weaken, disable, provoke, hit, or attack in a weak spot in order for him to gain access to the weak point sigils. Barba will simply allow Barba will simply follow Wanda, kneel down once he is inside the ruins, and Wanda can then climb up its beard, which leads directly to its sigils. Barba's walking speed Barba's walking speed is faster than Wanda's running speed. If Wanda doesn't do anything while Barba is kneeling down, Barba will eventually smack the area above Wanda to draw him out. Barba is the bulkiest out of all the bipedals, having huge biceps, a heavily built upper body, and chunky legs. Barba has some small horns on its head. They appear to be sculpted. Barba is the only bipedal colossus that has no weapon. So I recently took a trip to Indonesia and I could not help myself but take as many photos as I could of all the statuary and all the wonderfully sculpted masks, you know, that are carved into all the shrines and um, temples there. And all throughout I was, I could not take my mind away from how, when I, and all throughout I couldn't take my mind away from how these um, sculptures uh, really do make one just... And all throughout, I couldn't take my mind away from just how much... And all throughout, I couldn't help but think occasionally of uh, Fumito Ueda's games and this wonderful emphasis on creating iconography that is that really feels as though it could come from a real-world real culture. And when I look at Barbara's uh, face and I look at the mask, I think it's probably my favorite of all the masks, definitely. It almost has almost like a bat-like feeling, you know, uh, to it with the, uh, with the horns that almost look like ears, right? But there's, in terms of my analysis... If I were to analyze the expression, there is just inquiry, you know, there is mystery. But you can see that, like, but I, but I think something, con just, just from an artist, just from a creative point of view and an aesthetic point of view, uh, symbolically, the sunken in cheeks is something that, yeah, when you get older, uh, it's likely that, you know, sort of you, you'll lose sort of weight around the face and your cheeks begin to sink in. So that is an illusion there that's been done to the uh, to the sculpture. And what I what I what I love so much about these uh, these colossi is that as well as seeming as though it could come from our kind of cultures in the world, it's altogether like the way that it's done so geometrically which again you know has it can uh we have um the older generation of playstations to thank for that the sort of polygonal uh you know playstation 2 wasn't capable of too many facets you know um so i think is that's a wonderful way of the same way that journey did with its um with its flashback secret spoilers for journey by the way make sure you play this game which came out back in 2012 so i don't think i'm risking too much and it doesn't spoil too much but there are some flashbacks to an era where yeah there's cave paintings of these um this civilization that resemble uh 8-bit 
you know, uh, platformers, sort of these simple geometric shapes. And I love uh, seeing when I look at the Colossi, uh, these a little allusions to that, because no culture that I know of on our Earth uses these big flat surfaces, which denote that it was designed re with a, a program with like a um, with a digital sculpting program. So I love that. There's, so I love that that's sort of a subtle part of uh, what these uh, creatures are designed as. And this beautiful sense of tying in modernity with ancientness. These checks, these textures, these um, these textures and these colors of like ancient stone with sort of moss growing around it, but these surfaces that basically betray that they were designed back in 2005 or 2004 on this platform, which allowed for only a certain number of like um, surfaces to be rendered, you know. And what that does is this wonderful combination of these two, you know, modernity and ancestry combined to make something wonderful and unique that is at once in both worlds, something I could directly imagine, just like in that viral marketing, which we will analyze at some point with the, the glimpses that we see of back in 2005, there was this viral marketing for Shadow of the Colossus, which showed these, um, uh, yeah, structures, these entities, these colossi being discovered around the world. Um, and yeah, I, I would love, I would love to... And so that really, and so that really, and so when I look at them, I can, and so when I look at these designs and I, and I, and I analyze them and interpret them, I immediately think of that. I think of something, well, that I could easily have come across that inside a MoMA, inside a, inside a museum of something. And I would love for there to be maybe a, a retrospective at some point where just like how they did for God of War, they made these um, assets for real. They made these, uh, in-game weapons and items like the books and the runestones and everything for real if they could maybe team up with prime one studio to do wonderful renders of these um, obviously to scale would be impossible because they'd be too massive but i wonder if they could do like an exhibition like shadow of the colossus the exhibition or the last guardian the exhibition or Ico the exhibition or fumito ueda the exhibition to just see some of these um uh, wonderful features of the worlds whether it's the ruins whether it's these big miniatures maybe they could team up with weta workshop to portray this I think it would be wonderful and if there was ever anything of that kind like Fumito Ueda the exhibition I'm pointing to myself right now I would definitely be there for sure so there we have it Barba I love this colossi I would probably say at this stage is my number five favorite colossi out there so yeah I hope you and so yeah, I hope you enjoyed that analysis. And if you did have any stories related to Barba, please write in, send a voicemail, and we'll play them on the next episode. We ended up folding a lot of our theories into the analysis and discussion, so we'll move straight into community correspondence. So here we just have seven comments on the post I made 12 days ago to reddit.com forward slash r forward slash Fumito Ueda, which is the sub that I created and that I run as well and moderate essentially just announcing the recording of the episode and seeing if anyone wanted to comment and be featured on the show. Number one, we have Uman the Inimitable, my co-host from the early episodes, who shares his article. This was my response to the final symposium of The Last Guardian, which I'll be reading at some point in future entries. By the way, The Last Guardian, ep the Last Guardian Symposium. I spent way too much time talking about the screenshot of the earlier character model, but I am not, but I am interested in 
in the earlier character model, but I am interested in whether you think it's a boy or a girl. Of course, feel free to not answer if you think that's something you'd rather not talk about, or just answer here in response. I find it funny how I think when you were first setting up the podcast, we both fully expected to be talking about the next game by this point. Then, not only was it not at E3 or TGS, but there's no PSX and no E3 presence next year as well. Who knows when the heck we'll see this thing, so thanks, Logan. Looking forward to having you on future shows, my friend. So diving into his article on landsoflightanddark.tumblr.com, I'll read from his wonderful post here. Final Last Guardian blog post thoughts. I had more thoughts than usual about the Last Guardian interview post on Gen Design's website, so I decided to write a f- so I decided to write a full post on it instead of a small one with bullet points. The vin- the interview itself is here. Several months later, I now see that this link was not to the blog post. Whoops, here's the blog post. But since I didn't make a post for the last part of it, I'm actually going to start by talking about the main interesting thing that came out of that. So as it turns out, the Gen Design team actually wanted to update Trico's AI after the game's release in response to the play logs of everyone playing. This is a big deal, considering that Trico's AI was the main complaint about the game. There are several parts There are several parts of the game that could use an update specifically along the lines of what they say here, making Trico more agreeable. The one that really comes to mind for me is the the diving section, where in the second part I feel like Trico's AI is genuinely broken. It's very sad to hear that they planned this and weren't able to implement it. I imagine all those players out there who had big problems with one or two parts of the game having those problems removed. And going by what I've seen on Twitch streams, which I detail in this post, and going by what I've seen on Twitch streams, that's a lot of people. So, the latest and last post. The most interesting theory is the stuff about the boys' design, which I'm sure was something those of us who were following these points were waiting for them to talk about, specifically relating to specifically relating to the fact that the character was originally conceived as a girl. You may have seen my prematurely made and promptly deleted posts on this. Cu- posts on this account. You may have seen my prematurely made and promptly deleted posts on this a couple days ago, and now I've read the actual post. So Oweda starts by elaborating on his reasons for not making the character female, and you know, much love to the guy, but his reasons are just as bad as they previously were. This time he goes into the same argument Ubisoft used years ago with Assassin's Creed Unity, where it's apparently harder to model a girl character than a boy character because you have to animate hair and skirts. There's kind of a lot of talk about extra costs and difficulty of design in these posts, actually. It's weird. Ueda and co. seem to make a lot of effort to convince everyone that these games are kind of just something they do at their jobs. They talk about how gameplay comes first and story second multiple times in these as well, but actually playing the games, everything's integrated so well that you wouldn't know. But it does make me wonder, what would the games be like if the devs didn't worry about the budget or time constraints? Anyway, Ueda also makes a more general version of the people would look up the skirt argument by saying that people would see her as a sexual object, which is a weird way to state it because instead of people w- instead of people would look up instead of people would look up the character's skirt for giggles, which is probably the reason most people would have done that sort of thing, it turns into something about pedophilia. Not that it matters because both arguments ignore the fact that you could just have had the character wear pants and even if she's a girl. Or you could change the hair so it doesn't require as much animation. But then but then they post a screenshot of what looks like a girl version of the boy with curly hair and pants. They did it. They actually tried to make a better version of the model. They did it. 
They did it. They actually tried to make a better version of the model before settling on the boy for some other reason we don't know, except apparently not. According to the caption, these screenshots are from a time when the character was a boy with wavy hair. This really confused me when I saw it. I was very sure that character model was of a girl. I shared Gendesign's tweet of the post link with that screenshot on the blog, excitedly saying we finally got a look at the girl character model, but the post itself says it's not. Now, I don't want to come off as weird, or as a conspiracy theorist, but I think there might be a bit more here than... But I think there might be a bit more here than there seems. Some people believe the caption fully. Some people, well, one Reddit that I saw, believe very much that it's a girl, and that the caption is wrong. I think there is some evidence to that. For one, most Japanese expressions lack pronouns. There have been situations where fans of a thing were unsure if a character was male or female before the creator confirmed it. I'm not entirely sure if that applies to the situation, because in the English translation, they're not using a pronoun, they're using a noun, and just saying it's a boy. Aside from that is the pose. I think it goes without saying that it's a feminine pose, one the boy never takes in the main game. The back is arched a bit, the leg is up, the character model is looking at the camera. The third, the third thing is that we... The third thing is that we've never seen this version of the boy, or at least I don't think we have. Someone on Twitter posted a screenshot of the model used in the Project Trico trailer, insinuating it was the same one, but I think it's different. The hair in the Project Trico model looks like a bunch of flat textures moving in the wind, while the blog post's model, while the blog post model looks larger and curly, almost like an afro. I zoomed in on it as much as I could, and I don't see how it, and I don't see how I could be seeing it wrong. Other than that, the pants are shorter and the undershirt is yellow instead of what the instead of instead of white in the blog post model. So they're definitely different models. But is the one in the blog post a girl? Well, we don't know, and just like with Trico, though I often call it he out of habit, I won't assume. I also think the face looks smoother and find it interesting how I don't think you could describe the hair in the blog post model as wavy, but you could definitely describe it this, but you could definitely describe the hair of the Project Trico model that way. But that's all I can say about it. There's more about the blog post to discuss. They talk about the bridge collapse section and how they lead players through it, which, in the case of that part, mostly seems to work, though I've seen people take time to figure out how to get over to the scaffolding, not realizing you can jump over to Trico, really one of the easier sections in the game. They mention how their goal in the start of The Last Guardian was to reduce the technological challenges, which is an odd thing to say considering they needed to design a large and realistic AI-controlled animal and have it be able to interact with the entire game world. Then they share a screenshot of a possible GUI the game could have had. In it, there's a wheel of symbols at the top of... In it, there's a wheel of symbol... In it, there's a wheel of symbols at the top of the screen that the player could probably cycle through. There are only three symbols. One is for the mirror, it says Kagami under it, and the others are actually kind of hard to decipher. There's one that looks like some kind of crosshair that I'd guess would be for targeting something for Trico to interact with. Didn't they say that they thought about letting you do that in first person at some point, or am I imagining that? And the other one is for maybe just normal movement and interaction. To close this post, they do something I didn't expect, and talk about the teaser image they showed in January. To close the post, they do something that I actually didn't expect, and they talk about the teaser image they showed in January, of the new title, the girl with the sheep, of the new title, you know, the one with the girl and the sleeping giant. 
Ueda plays it very coy, describing it as one picture from our process of trial and error. Gen Design is trying something new with early days on this title, creating actual models and possibly gameplay in the game engine instead of doing a CGI instead of doing a CG concept video. It seems like maybe they're making multiples it seems like maybe they're making multiple similar concepts and will decide which one they want to go forward with, though I'm guessing the girl and the creature from the teaser image will be in the next game no matter what. I hope so too, Logan. With this information, it seems like we definitely shouldn't have expected anything at E3, but I do think it's possible to get something at TGS or PSX later this year. So PSX isn't happening, but we could still get something at uh, at um, the game. Uh, oh yeah, and this was... And that's pretty much it. They talk about how they're hiring at Gen Design and what kind of people they want, though I doubt much of that is relevant to any of us. This post ended up being pretty long, so thanks for reading, and as always, if you have a, if you have a response, please reply or reblog. I'm glad I was able to write this much about The Last Guardian again. It's been a while. That's awesome, my friend. Thank you so much for sharing that. Looking forward to having you back on the show. So we have a comment from Dark. So we have a comment from Dark Dash Wraith. Yes, I've been waiting for this. Bring on the beardy boy. Barber has always been one of my favorite fights in that it was in that it is in that it is at first bombastic and loud as you struggle to get to the other side of the room. Then as you hide, the music winds down and it seems almost playful in how it tries to find you. Bonus. Also, bonus point also, bonus points for amazing speedrun strat. The way you can launch off its arm is crazy. Only thing that beats it is the Gaia sword launch. And in response, and in response to saying, and in response to my response saying that I'd read it on the show, he says, "Thanks." Also, as a side note, I always found it interesting that the hole in the roof of the boss arena is the only way that light can enter, and it resembles the hole in the shrine of worship roof through which Dorman speaks. Perhaps it was a place of worship at some point. Good luck with the show. So this, for me, makes puts me in mind. So this for me puts me in mind of another so so this for me launches me down another avenue of sort of symbolism reading and um I'm going to link Barba to Dorman now so you have the horns first of all and then you have the dark coloring right and then if we really want to go there the number 6 which you know 666 number of the beast satan okay so a darker horn-bearing evil uh being you know, with a long beard, scraggly, denoting of something that's been around for a while. And in the Bible, you know, Satan has been around since essentially the creation of everything, being sort of one of the fallen angels of God, you know. So that is something that I couldn't help but interpret when I sort of thought of the connection between Barba and Dorman. And then also, again, looking at uh, the way that the Colossi are arrayed narratively, uh, that they're sort of structured and sequenced. For me, this is the, as I like to call it, the Spielbergian foreshadowing, you know, at around about four tenths of the way through his film, he'll put something that'll foreshadow a, a, a terrifying event to come later. So for Jurassic Park, for example, there's a sequence where they pass through um, the Tyrannosaur enclosure and it's completely dead silent. Nothing happens. And that makes you anxious. But it is there in your mind as you go forward. And then later in the narrative, you come back to it and things get blown loose and just go crazy and become very, very frightening. So for me, Barba represents that sort of Spielbergian tease towards eventually Dorman at the end of the game. And especially Malice, who also has the horns. So the horns denote evil. They denote something ancient and 
uh, uncontrollable and dark. And uh, Barba is our first little tease of that, you know, after the naivety uh, and uh, playfulness um, and, uh, you know, some of the pathos of Gaius and Quadratus and Valus, you know, uh, and Phaedra, right? and avion um these sort of bright and sort of uh you know the equine shapes and um and 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 sort of the birds up in the sky there's i would say after that diving into the into the pit with with satan you know deep underground right with with barba the bearded one uh if you've seen the witch there's also the the goat the goat with the beard right um black philip with Anya Taylor Johnson, very highly recommend that 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 uh, film. Frightening, but with a purpose to it as well. It's the only kind of horror that I enjoy. So extra little layers there that I sort of read into. Again, maybe none of this was operating consciously for Ueda, um, but subconsciously, I believe. Again, it's always worthwhile diving into this stuff, even if it wasn't intended on the part of the creators, because it allows us to appreciate. Uh, uh, and sort of work those analytical and, and symbolic analysis uh, muscles, which ends up enriching the work regardless, you know. So, yeah, hopefully I've uh, shared a few things here of my own thoughts and, and Logan's thoughts here of, you know, there's Last Guardian there, obviously, but on, on, on Barba that uh, hopefully will maybe when you play the game again, you uh, will be able to sort of pick up on, um, you know, some of the connections that we've made. Uh, that I made here and that uh, hopefully um, uh, you enjoyed and uh, found insightful and um, additive. So for the fan of the week, I have to shout out my good friend Dark-Wraith for commenting on the post. You are awesome. Your name should be appearing on the screen now. Thank you so much. And in terms of the art showcase, I actually want to showcase this um, really awesome young artist here, Manic Sam. The world of Fumito Ueda, a wonderful illustration here. Well done to you. Your art is now being featured on the show. So thank you so much for that. I'm actually going to name you a show... Uh, I'm going to just read from their post here. There's a world formed from the imagination of video game maker and director Fumito Ueda. Three awesome, beautifully made games, Eco, Shadow of the Colossus, and The Last Guardian. Eco, a, bo Eco, a boy born with horns, Eco, a boy born with horns, is feared by an entire kingdom and is locked away in a labyrinthine fortress where he and a girl must escape together for freedom. Shadow of the Colossus, a young man named Wanda, and his loyal horse Agro feature across a forbidden land where creatures as tall as mountains make their homes in order to bring back a loved one by slaying each of these magnificent beasts. The Last Guardian, no video game has made me cry so much as this one. A boy wakes up in the lair of a magnificent and legendary creature named Trico. The boy and Trico must escape a magnificent abandoned city known as the Nest. As they both overcome obstacles, the pair of them share a bond which can never be broken. This game, ma this game made me cry so much I don't think I could play it again, but it's a beautiful game. <laughs> Lovely comment from uh, Perry Lego City 60134. Pro tip, play cheery music when playing The Last Guardian to remain happy. That's lovely. We have another beautiful piece here by Kaiser Giants, fan art of The Last Guardian, okay? Playing the game was fantastic and frustrating at the same time, which is wonderful. Again, as I've said many times, Last Guardian, my, The Last Guardian, my absolutely overwhelmingly favorite work of any kind of creativity, basically of all time. I love it so dearly, transcending beyond the medium of games itself, for sure. Goodness me, embodies interactive artistry and beyond, for sure, that game metaphorically so rich and i've discussed this in the earlier episodes of interactive artistry uh in fact in the very first episode of interactive artistry i talk about um how the game is this giant metaphor of man this giant metaphor 
this giant metaphor of creator and creation, something that maybe fights back, wrestles back, doesn't obey your commands, but ultimately that you are patient with, that you understand, and that eventually you create a bond that cannot be broken. And Fumito very much had that experience with this unruly project, which almost in many ways refused to come along when he asked it to come along with him. And uh, in that same manner of sort of bearing with a uh, unruly and, and young and um, unresponsive pet, all of that was intentional. It was brilliant. It was wonderful to each their own for people who didn't enjoy it but that was me and and i just it's going to be almost impossible to to top that um for me and i think if anyone could do it it's probably Fumito to himself with his next title so we shall see so thank you so much for that one kaiser thank you so much for creating that one my friend wonderful piece of art thank you we have a lovely piece here just of trico here with wonderful lighting by the crayon bot thank you so much there on deviant art so and in honor of the subject of this episode, Barba, this is the artist of the week. 1Z82 from DeviantArt, from the awe-inspiring and moving Shadow of the Colossus. You can purchase their prints uh, at the link in the description. Just stunning beyond words. It's here on the screen now as you're looking. The way that he's captured, again, that menace, that sense of a fallen angel almost in his crypt, you know, growing that long beard of cynicism and danger and darkness and um uh, and hostility you know and uh, reclusiveness and those red glowing eyes that thin gaunt face the you know basically the the, the ultimate kind of nadir point of um isolating oneself deep in, in the dark sort of bowels of the earth which is many way in many ways we ascribe that to sort of hateful creatures that um are have grown so have grown so tangled again just like a beard caught up in their own view of the world caught up in their own darkness that they um shun the light and they um hide away from it and create a realm of evil and of uh menace and that is very much the energy that Barba's design conveys and is captured perfectly here and you sort of the plucky uh sort of sprig of light that interestingly again with that layeredness the lands of light and dark as you know logan's um uh, endeavor is called over in tumblr there's this duplicitousness you know because these creatures however dark and scary and and, and fury uh, fury filled in, in many cases just like barba that they seem they are of nature and again we look at natural disasters we look at earthquakes we look at uh you know uh, tsunamis and all this we we ascribe evil to them because they take our lives away they take our livelihoods away like the fires for example these uh acts of nature but ultimately even though we may see them we we paint that evil there that's a human aspect to give something an evil aspect to give something uh, an evil backstory or an evil impetus in in actual fact these are just natural occurrences natural forces and um barba even though he may come across that way this is this is all language i'm applying to him again it really goes back to that idea that we have given these narratives to nature we have given these narratives of something that we are to be afraid of that we can exploit that we can get away with betraying that we can that we can get away with taking advantage of um and that we yeah give this these that we anthropomorphize and uh, and Ueda sort of symbolizes that in how he's channeled these works, in that he's in that he's created these figures that very much evoke unconquerable natural forces into these figures that we have to conquer in our own way, 
again in that duplicitous way which is both positive towards saving a life and negative in that we're assuming control and 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 not thinking about our impact on the environment these colossi live in and then just extrapolating that in terms of the metaphor not thinking about our impact on the environment directly you know the forbidden lands that wonderful metaphor there so powerful thank you so much my friend for that and you definitely are the artist of the week and the creator of the week and that brings us to the end of the show if you enjoyed it go ahead and like share subscribe and hit the notification button here on youtube and on podcast services i'd really appreciate if you left a review it would really help us with the rankings so that more people on the podcast networks can find us and i'd sincerely appreciate it also and if you want to ensure this podcast can continue and help the network grow and to help the network grow you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash interactive artistry. For a variety of exclusives, perks, privileges, and early access, including digital and physical gifts, Patreon-only podcast feeds, and even appearing on and even appearing on the show. If you'd like to get in touch, if you'd like to get in touch, you have contact at interactive-artistry.com. Instagram is also interactive. The Instagram is just all one word, Interactive Artistry, and the Twitter is InterArtistry. Then you also have the Tumblr at interactiveartistry.tumblr.com. Interactive Artistry is a podcast network comprised of 36 shows, with more being added every few weeks, and it is available across 10 platforms. As I mentioned, there are more shows on the way, and we are looking for hosts. If you are interested, please get in touch via contact at interactive-artistry.com or interactiveartistry.com forward slash contact. You can also chime in on any of the social media outlets mentioned earlier, and you can head to interactive-artistry.com forward slash hosting for, inf for information on the professional and technical requirements of becoming an interactive artistry host. Until next time, bye for now, and remember, there's a certain level of realism that can only be achieved through the imaginary. <laughs>